0: Can you wear a Muppet is my question, or is it not kosher to wear a Muppet? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. A little bit past Rosh Chodesh Nissan. Tov to you and yours. Are you feeling the sort of
1: post-Rosh Chodesh lull? Can I tell you? No, I'm feeling a huge it, sense of exuberance because this is the month where if you daven, uh, you don't have to say Tachnun. So all of your daily pairs
0: just got 26% shorter.
2: Can you guys tell us what Rosh Hodash actually is? Top of the month. Okay, okay. Can you introduce me already? So
0: saith my De- other co-host, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick.
2: Hello. Great to be here, whatever month it is.
0: Whatever month it is. Today on the show, our Jew of the Week is Hani Apfelbaum, who started the food blog, Busy in Brooklyn, and who joined us to talk about her latest cookbook, Totally Kosher. Our other Jew of the Week is Zach Hample, who has caught more than 12,000 baseballs at Major League stadiums. It's Rosh Hodesh of, like, baseball season. It is. It is. It is. It's air of baseball. <laughs> Stephanie Butnick. What's up with you?
2: So I'm, I'm coming in today with something fiery. And this starts, as most great Jewish conversations do, in a text thread I was having with my friend Irene Pappas. She's Greek. She's not Jewish, though she is married to a Jew. And she texted me the other day and she was like, I don't understand the Kohane thing. Like, if I was on your podcast, that would be my Gentile of the Week question. You know, like Kohanim are descendants of the priestly caste. And she's texting me saying, like, I don't understand how people can just claim that status. And she says she wonders what Liel thinks. And can I figure this out for her? And I write back, of course, you know, XOXO will do. And she's sort of like really going deep in the Wikipedia page um, and asking, like, how do people know if they were related to Aaron, the original high priest? And I was like, well, you know, Irene, that Ben Cohen, my Ben Cohen, is a Cohen. And she's like, no, 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 I know he's a Cohen, And I was like, no, he's a kohane
1: The Kohans are a priestly tribe. They hail from New Jersey.
2: Anyway, she's getting super into it and like does not understand it. And is like fascinated by it.
0: First of all, it's so funny how deep in she's gone. She's, she's thought about it more than most Kohanim. Can I try and Liel, you can come in hard if I fail. I would love nothing more. The simple answer is, while there's some genetic evidence now that they do this DNA testing, that actually a lot of Kohanim, who are people who have special privileges in the temple, they get the first aliyah, and also certain impediments—they're not supposed to marry divorcees and things like that. It's a it's a priestly class in the Torah, and there are people who claim and and are honored as still being of that class. And there's some evidence now that we have DNA testing that they actually a lot of them are actually related to each other, and it's a genetic marker that goes way way back. But more importantly, they just reliably have been in families that have. Claim to be of this group for as far as we know, a couple thousand years. And so your dad tells you that you were one because his dad told him that he was one. And kind of nobody disputes it because who would make that up? It's a weird thing. There's no money that <laughs> there's. Not, it doesn't get you into Harvard. I mean, it just well, you do you do you do get the first Aliyah every day. You so. get the first yeah, Aliyah, aliyah out of the seven at synagogue. You're the first person called up to say a blessing over the Torah reading on Saturday.
2: Wait, so do but, they actually say like, do we have a Kohane in the house? Yeah, they'll say, is there a Kohain in the house? Absolutely, they will.
0: And uh, in the conservative movement, they'll accept a the daughter of, the, of a kohane though not her children.
2: That's amazing. That's like the only patrilineal thing we have. Only,
0: only in the conservative movement. It's patrilineal, but the daughter gets it. And actually, I think the movement is reconsidering this right now and might actually allow the Cohen status to pass through the female line as well. But Sid is a bot Kohen. Her dad is a Kohen.
2: But only if the mom changes her name. Sorry, that's,
0: Edith. That's right. There's so many so many costs to becoming an Oppenheimer. Bo, but, and a lot of people who are named Cohen, but also people named Kagan is another one that was kind of the same line. Cats as well, by the way. Did I miss anything, Leo? You want to throw anything on top of that? First of all, there's a center
1: for Kohanim in Jerusalem, which strikes me as like the world's greatest clubhouse. It's like, sup, Cohen? How you doing, Cohen? Yo, Cohen, my man. <laughs> uh, but who gets the first Aaliyah when they have a minion? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, there's, a, there's a cage in the center and they have to fight for it. <laughs> They're like God. cage matches. Um, the genetic testing is actually pretty decisive on this thing. Like, It is actually lineage. It's not a joke.
2: So wait, so this all comes full circle because Irene then texts me again and says, you know, if Ben did 23andMe, if he got his DNA tested, he can actually check his haplogroup. And so I start a new text, this one with Ben and Irene, and I write, Ben, do you have access to your 23andMe data? And then Irene says, it's important. Ben says, why? And Irene says, I'm trying to understand the Kohanim. Ben writes back, (laughs) Ben writes back, (laughs) Ben writes back, oh, of course. <laughs> so he comes back in a little bit and says, I checked my haplogroup. It's this whatever, like permutation of letters and numbers. And she's like, that's not it. You don't have the right haplogroup.
1: Oh, my God. He's, he's a fool. <laughs> he's Issachar. He's
2: a fraud. It's a lie. He's like, but wait, my my DNA also says I'm 99.8% Ashkenazi <laughs> Jewish. That's also in there. But then I'm like, wait, I'm sorry, what? You're not a Jewish. You want to get. I you want a divorce now. I asked your dad. I said, are you guys <laughs> real Kohanes? <laughs> We've got the Bracajin thing going. We have like that Jewish thing. But I'm like, tell me at least you guys are real Kohens. And I feel like now I think they might I not I will say be. it
1: this way. Since this is a patrilineal thing in some senses, because the Kohanim in the temple were often the sons of other Kohanim Knowing and loving Ben Cohen's father, Jesse Cohen, very much, I am 100% sure that Jesse Cohen is a Cohen. You just see it in him. You just... That that <laughs> dude is a priestly class.
2: Basically, I'm like, wait, so you're not a real priest? And Irene says, according to Wikipedia, only half of people who claim to be from that group are. And then Ben says, I don't like your tone, Irene. <laughs> Anyway, I feel weird even saying this, like, in public. Ben was
1: like, not only are your co-workers supremely annoying, now your friends are really (laughs) annoying,
2: too. I may have married into a fake Kohanim family. Fohanim! (laughs) Fohanim! (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Fohanim! I mean, this is like discovering Santa Claus isn't real, I imagine. Ben Fohan, that's amazing. We're going to need you to step to the back of the show, please. (laughs) Yeah. So about that first Aliyah you've been getting for 50 years. Oh, my God. Jesse Cohen is going to kill me for this.
1: Sir, st- step away from the Torah.
2: <laughs> J. Crew, I'm jumping back in the studio to tell you that I actually saw my in-laws, the Cohens, the Cohans, uh, for brunch this weekend. And over bagels and lox, I gave Jesse Cohen the third degree. I actually pulled out my phone, recorded a voice memo. You can hear Edith, you can hear the whole family noshing and schmoozing, um, but here is a little bit of our conversation.
1: Not all Kohanim were, really? as it were, in, in the high priest
2: oh. hey, sit. Please. You know
1: what I mean? So like they, were, oh boy. Mm-hmm. You they were... You want your couch?
2: Yeah, a hundred Kohanim. Then
0: maybe two or this? three of them would
2: have been... Irons.
1: Like the... Okay. Yeah, okay. the cream okay. of the cream.
2: So you guys could still be Kalanin, but you're lesser Kalanin. Well, lesser ones? Well. So that was, on the record, what my father-in-law, Jesse Cohen, had to say about that. And now, back to the banter.
0: Uh, Leo, is anything that interesting happened in your week?
1: Oh, absolutely not. But I did make a discovery of my own this week. One night, martinis may or may not have been involved. I was toying, as one does these days, with ChatGPT, man's best friend. And then I kind of had a, a realization, Mark, what is one thing that you and I, one of the many things that you and I, uh, being middle-aged
0: children of the 90s, obsess over? I mean, it's got, you're either thinking about Cameron Crowe movies or Beverly Hills 90210 or mixtapes. I am thinking very much about mixtapes. And so I, on a lark, I said,
1: hey, ChatGPT, I like this band and this band and this band and this band. Could you make me a playlist? And ChatGPT comes back with something that's good. And so I take it a step further. I was like, ChatGPT, can you make me a playlist because I like The Cure, but I don't want any songs by The Cure in it. And ChatGPT comes back with an actually better playlist. And then I say, how about songs for people who like The Cure without The Cure, but no top 40 hits, but only from the years 1993 to 1997. And it kept getting better and better and better because the ways you could cut it based on its access to infinite reams of data just delivered this kind of like magical algorithmic mystery tour. Oh my God. And I thought of you. I thought, you know who would like this? Mark Oppenheimer
0: would love this. What I want is... A playlist that is based on the Traveling Wilburys handle with care, but that includes no songs by any of the five Traveling Wilburys. Will it give me that?
1: Or, or I'll be like the Traveling Wilburys, but no Jeff Lynn, please. No Jeff. <laughs> I want, I want Yacht Rock, but my yacht is only 10 feet long. It's not the 50 footer. <laughs>
2: This is getting <laughs> vaguely genocidal. Because <laughs> yeah. you're basically saying like, I want all the stuff in culture, but I don't want any of the, I don't know, Jews? Exactly.
1: Nothing written but by Jews. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
2: that's I want to live in the world where like all these cool things exist, but I don't want to encounter any of the Jews who made them. We're two steps away from that.
0: I want playlists with show tunes, none of which were written by Kohani. <laughs> oh my God. Let's let's ask it that. Can you make me laugh with comedy? That was not written by Jews.
2: <laughs> I want things in the style of Mel Brooks, but he's just a little too Jewy for me. You guys, <laughs> repent, repent. Oh my, oh my. We're two steps away from total erasure. Comedy, but only from the tribe of Judah.
0: <laughs> oh, shall we move into me?
2: <laughs> I don't. Okay, okay. Let's let's do it. Top
0: that. Okay, you want me to you want me to top that? So. I would like to think that my greatest moment in the history of the podcast, do you remember how I told you that we were having a, that Sid and I were having a son?
2: Yeah, it wasn't like a multiple choice exam that we all failed? a friend. Which of these four
0: things is true? Boom, boom, boom. You ready? Boom, boom. Number one, that Sid and I are expecting a baby boy. One of these four things is true. <laughs>
2: oh my Lord. Number one. Wow, coming out strong. <laughs> yeah. That Sid and
0: I are expecting a baby boy. Number two, that because I was never circumcised, something I've never written about or talked about, I've decided it really is time to have a bris. On the air. and Well, not on the air, but we're going to do a documentary about it. There will be some recording going on and certain colleagues may be invited if they can stomach it. Okay? Number three, we're getting two more dogs. Sid was on a late night puppy porn pet finder spree and without asking me, she put in adoption papers for two puppies who are being fostered right now in Galveston, Texas. Not dogs we need, but we're getting them. Or number four, I have decided because lots of people have written and said, you know, we love you, Mark. Why don't you have a congregation that I need to get smicha, that I need to get ordained. And I've enrolled in Hebrew colleges. So I'm not going to do a multiple, multiple choice quiz this time because I don't want to play coy. And actually, you guys know this already, but most people don't. This is my biggest news since that news, which is that I realized at some point that we are coming up on episode 360 of Unorthodox. And I realized that at episode 360 or thereabouts, it was time for me to retire as host of the Universe's Leading Jewish Podcast. I am stepping down at the end of April as host of this podcast. I am uh, moving into the newly created title of host emeritus. The responsibility is yet to be determined. And uh, I'm going to have the most pleasurable job in the world, which is being a listener of this podcast, of, of having no skin in the game when I will actually get to enjoy a Thursday morning listen of this podcast without wondering if I said something stupid, without fearing that Irish Twitter will come after me to take a very <laughs> deep cut from the <laughs> podcast. So I want to tell J.Crew that's happening. Um, many of you have already seen, because the New York Times reported on it in a long article about Judy Bloom, that she has asked me to write her biography. So I have a lot of work to do because uh, we want to get that biography out sometime in the next few years. And so I'm going to be spending a lot of time in those archives. And continuing to contribute to Tablet, and if people want to keep up to date on that stuff or whatever else I'm doing, I'm doing the most cliched thing one can do, except to uh, use ChatGPT, which is I'm going to start a newsletter. If people go to markoppenheimer.com, they can sign up for my free newsletter, and I'll I'll keep them abreast. So let the nice emails begin. I will welcome. I would love to get get everyone's thoughts and feelings from the J Crew as ever. We're at unorthodoxatabletmag.com at or nine one four five seven zero four eight six nine. And I'll be saying more at the end of April, but right now I just want to, you know, say that I'm looking forward to a last month uh, in the air chair.
2: This is obviously big news, Mark. Uh, We love you and we are so excited for you. Thank you. And we're here, Crew, to help you process this. (laughs) And I think the way we're going to do it is by asking you to write us in with your favorite Mark moment, your favorite Markism, your just favorite thing about Mark. We have a whole special Markisode planned as Mark's last episode, a special sendoff slash roast. We love you and we're so excited about all these projects you're working on. We know how much the Judy Bloom book means to you. It's not going to be the same here without you, but we love you.
1: And and like every like every loving relationship, this transition will take a very long time to process. Not just for us, but for the listeners as well. Thankfully, we have time to do it, and thankfully, we do have this exalted Cohen emeritus position that is here, which allows us to continue and pester you as as you sit by the pool in Hollywood and field scripts uh, for the you know. <laughs> jenna ortega star vehicle as she will play young judy bloom in the upcoming biopic that you will write after your book is a massive success So hopefully what i'm saying here is you'll still take our calls uh, yes. from from poolside la mance oppenheimer oppenshire manor west yeah uh and and a lot of uh a lot of a lot of changes a lot of transitions this is this is passover it's a time of uh it's a time of all kinds of changes and and, and and good things happening and we will uh continue to talk about this. I mean, look, if we talked about Tupperware and parking on the show for like seven weeks, you could you could bet that
0: this is not the last you have heard about this.
2: Yeah, I mean I really like this because Emeritus is basically like the rabbi who shows up sometimes, like he comes in for the food.
0: And just has opinions.
2: This is like you think you're leaving, but you're not gone completely. Your name's on the building. <laughs> And the, the corduroy Rav will, you know, will get corduroy bombed every now and then. The real
0: question is whether anyone else can ever be the corduroy. Is the corduroy Rav like a, an academic chair where when someone ceases to be the so-and-so professor no. of whatever. No. Then somebody else, the next person hired. A- no. ab- absolutely not. Any of your children may be the yes. corduroy oh, Rav. I see. It's full-on Hasidisha. It's like Completely. only, it's only yes. genetic.
2: Your daughter can also be the it. The
0: daughters could absolutely be the the corduroy Rav. Or, or David. Or David. Or if, David. If he wants to. That's until we find out that I'm the faux corduroy Rob, <laughs> that my HAPLA group is entirely false.
2: Uh, the forward, the faux-deroy, we'll get there. We'll workshop it.
0: The faux-deroy Rob. Friends, as ever, write to us on or call us at 914-570-4869.
1: this week was one of the most amazing, wackiest interviews we've ever had. Zach Hampel has collected more than 12,000 baseballs that he caught in various major league stadiums. I don't know how that is even humanly freaking possible. He has caught the number 3,000 career hit from A-Rod and Mike Trout's first career home run. And he is an absolute delight. He joined us to talk, obviously, about baseball because... Opening day is upon us. Have a listen.
2: Zach Campbell, welcome to Unorthodox.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks.
2: It is so exciting to be here with you. I'm excited. Leo, I think you might be the most excited I've ever seen.
1: You. I, I am very <laughs> excited. I'm, I'm reading some of the stats off Zach's bio and not usually envious of our guests. I'm very envious of this one. To understand why, I I would like to ask you to introduce yourself. What is it that you do? Well, I have
3: business cards slash contact cards printed up that say professional baseball nerd on them. I've been full-time making baseball videos on YouTube since 2017, and I've done a ton of writing in the past, but my claim to fame, the hook, has to do with catching baseballs in the stands at major league stadiums. So
1: if I wanted, for example, uh, let's say Mike Trout's first career home run, I would have to look somewhere on your shelf? You'd have
3: to look on Mike Trout's shelf because when I caught that ball in 2011, I gave it to him after the game. And I caught it in the eighth inning, so I only had it in my possession for about half an hour. (laughs) You know, baseball's a very interactive sport as far as the spectators are concerned because you can actually be a participant and not just a spectator. And that's what I love. I love beating the odds and feeling like I'm, I'm catching the object at the center of the national pastime. Now, and, hold on, Zach. Okay, I'm holding.
1: Uh, I, I go to a lot of baseball games, major and minor, like, really. Like, How a, many in, is a lot? A lot is probably, well, yeah, Like, most you, nights probably, we're trying to
2: work, and he's like, I'm at the Mets game. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I would say
1: 40, 50 a year, easy. Oh, that's uh, a lot. You know? Now, when I go, uh, here's my routine. I go to the stadium, I buy beers, and I sit there. You have caught 12,000 baseballs. I have caught zero baseballs. Explain to me, first of all, how how is the number even possible? Second of all, like, this seems to me to involve an exorbitant amount of, like, calculations, right? To know where to be to maximize your odds to catch that ball. First of all, you got to put down the beer, <laughs> stop
3: being a schlub. Get your, off your not, phone. Now
2: you lost me. <laughs> get off your phone, right?
3: You know, I, I show up early for batting practice. Pre-game warm-ups, the stadium is empty. Security is not as strict. The players are more generous. They're chucking balls into the crowd on top of what the players are hitting into the seats. So I get a lot of the baseballs in. A lot of the 12,000 I did acquire pre-game. It's not like I've snagged 12,000 game home run balls. Right. I've gotten 88 game home run balls which is 88 or 87 more than most people. So I feel good about that. And over 200 foul balls. There's so many tricks and tips and strategies that go into it. Picking the right spot, looking for the empty space. You never want to get trapped in the middle of a long row. So I look for the empty rows, the walkways, the tunnels, the standing room. I play righties and lefty matchups differently. I'll look at the wind, I consider the temperature, I crowd love size, this. stadium this is a, this security. Own
2: sport. But
1: hold on, is is there some is there like a software that helps you feed all this data and
2: like, you know, perfect place to be? I think he's the software and we're looking at it. Yeah. You make kind
1: these
3: calculations of. in your I, head. I mean, I mean, I've been to almost 2000 major league games and I played baseball my whole life up into college a little bit. So, I know the physics of the game. I know what to expect. But I have used websites and certain data and analytics over the years to help me think. There was, it's a now defunct, unfortunately, website that was called Hit Tracker, which then became ESPN Mm -hmm. Home Run Tracker. And they would have scatter plots of where all the home runs would land in a stadium, or you could look up a certain player and see where he hit them. And I actually used that site to help me position myself in San Diego in 2006. And I ended up catching Barry Bond's 724th career home (laughs) run. I I would like to... think that I would have caught it anyway but that site it provided what they called range rings and just sort of had these little umbrella shaped rings that would overlay the stadium seating areas and I was looking at the walkway and right field sort of right center can I go out this far and I was looking at how deep it was according to the site and I was like yes I can move over away from the competition not be 450 I'll be more like 420 and bonds hit one pretty much to me but Zach
1: if this is completely hypothetical, right, I'm I'm not saying that, but let's let's say I was really dumb and lazy and, and lack the ability to read and interact with such advanced software and wanted to ask you the following dumb question. If I want to maximize my chances of catching a ball, what's the best place in the stadium
2: to sit? Not next to me, <laughs> unless you have hired Zach, because that is a service you offer that's now. That's true. My
3: app is Zach Tracker. <laughs> there are absolute hot spots. And just for the record, I do give away most of the baseballs that I catch at this point. But for home runs, you know, it might sound obvious, but straightaway left, straightaway right field, those are the hot spots. And don't sit in the first few rows because that's usually where everybody else is sitting. So stay behind the crowd a little bit so you have some room to move, sit on the end of a row of seats so you have the stairs up and down and if a stadium isn't crazy deep out in the power alleys like in left and right center that can be a good spot too for foul balls there are other hot spots okay. which we can get you're, into. you're
1: lying down on the couch now we're, we're analyzing you zach how does this begin it begins with my weird childhood brain
3: getting hooked on it just from watching it on tv because the cameras would zoom in on fans going nuts whenever they caught a ball and i was like wow that's pretty cool. I was like four years old. These people look happy. They look, yeah, exactly. And and yet millions of other children out there have also seen the same thing on TV and they didn't grow up to be completely insane about it. So I don't know what happened, but I get such a rush every time the ball flies up in the air and it's coming near me. And I love to feel like I'm part of the action. 12,000 balls in still? Still. My heart races when that ball goes up in the air, like my heart will be pounding like crazy. Even if it's a deep fly out to the outfielder and I I go down a few stairs and, and he's drifting back on the warning track, just the anticipation <laughs> makes me go nuts. Not during batting practice, because you expect it then, but during a game, that elusive home run ball, yeah.
2: But you, you've clearly tapped into something. You have like 650,000 YouTube followers who are all watching along with you and often in person see you and say, Oh, my God, it's Zach Campbell. Like, I watch a video of a kid being like, do you see this guy right here? This is Zach Campbell. Like, people are really, you've created, it seems like, or you've tapped into this community of, of fellow fans, fellow obsessives who who are so excited by what you're doing that now you've become this celebrity to them. What is that like?
3: It's pretty wild. And yeah, if, if people haven't seen me in person, you really don't understand the full scope of the madness. And I try to show some of it in my videos, just people coming up to me, because Kids especially love seeing themselves on YouTube. To them, it, it might as well be like it's the, a movie or TV. That, like you those the kids thing.
2: growing up, right? It's like you see those yeah, kids on TV.
3: Exactly. And But in person, it's, it's pretty wild. Like easily a, 100 people a day on average probably approach me at stadiums. I usually spend anywhere from five to 45 minutes just taking selfies and signing autographs after batting practice every day. Like there'll be a, a crowd of 10, 20, 30 people that just keeps replenishing itself and occasionally I have to cut it off or security is like, <laughs> all right, you need to move or clearing out the section for the game. You know, I don't, I don't say this bragging, I'm just describing how it is, but it is pretty weird and cool to be in this situation where, you know, I have mothers coming up to me like, my kid is more excited to see you than Aaron Judge. And I'm like, <laughs> well, okay, well, that's probably because he can actually have a conversation with me. Judge is busy being Judge, but yeah, there's there's a lot of fervor for this.
2: It seems like this is only possible in baseball. Like, I can't see this happening in a basketball stadium, like this like true democratic fandom where it's like you become as well-known as a player. I mean, to me, there's is, it, is there something unique to baseball that allows this, that sort of responds to and welcomes this kind of interactive fandom?
3: I think so, because of how many crowd shots there are in baseball with balls flying in there With basketball, you know, how often do you catch a ball that goes into the seats? But it's just harder, I think, to interact with the players in other sports. And baseball lends itself to weirdos, I think, because it has such a rich, colorful history. Sure, there are super fans of other sports, but I don't know if they even have the chance to gain that recognition just because of the culture of the sport. But yeah, there are there are okay. definitely other YouTubers and people out there that have made a name for themselves.
1: So now I'm gonna burden you with uh with a lot of my gripes and, Throw for and, it. and you know, discontents. I remember I'm old enough to remember. you could pay, I don't know, $12 to go sit in Shea all the way up and have yourself a really, really great time. These seats today go for around 60 Baseball has become very, very different. So much so that when my kids, again, go to a lot of baseball games, visited Fenway for the first time, they were shocked. They're like, where's the Shake Shack? Where, where's the entertainment? Where's the kind of like the whole hullabaloo? Baseball has changed and it's changing away from exactly all these beautiful things that you are describing, the, the the crowd element of it, the, the democratic element of it, the ability to engage. Does that bother you? Do you agree with that? And that does that bother you? Some of
3: it bothers me. I understand that attention spans are short, and there's so many forms of entertainment. And the youth of today, they have these TikTok brains. I'm, I'm guilty of it myself because I post on TikTok. And it's hard to get people to just sit there and watch a baseball game for, <laughs> you can't even say three hours anymore. It's more like three and a half or four. Although, now they finally have a pitch clock, which... <sighs> You're shaking your head.
1: Yeah, in disgust, trepidation, and heartbreak. Yeah,
3: I the games need to be quicker, and it seems like it wasn't going to happen without a pitch clock. I mean, the whole idea of like, oh, we're not going to throw four pitches for intentional walks anymore to speed up the game, that's dumb. You need pitches to be thrown faster overall. But what I don't like is all the gamesmanship that already seems to be happening. Like, can't we just play faster and be nice about it instead of being dicks and holding the ball to the last second and tricking the batter because of the timing because of the clock because he stepped out once and he can't step out again it's just like the whole sport is yeah. turning into a gimmick with the runner on second
1: base it's and extra turning innings. into basketball with like oh there's like three more seconds left and there'll be like an hour and a half's worth of timeouts which is yeah. why i don't watch basketball anymore
3: yeah i hear you i mean i've always felt that you know, like basketball is a forty-eight minute game that takes two hours to play, and football is a sixty-minute <laughs> game that takes three hours to play. But mm-hmm. baseball, to me, has always felt like a three-hour game that takes three hours to play. There's a reason for the pacing, but it has gotten out of hand lately, and I understand that they need to do something about it.
1: When you see schmeggies like myself <laughs> going down uh, after the seventh inning to the dugout store and purchasing, often for you know, a pretty penny, you know, balls used during the game, which I have done for my children on several occasions. Not proud of it, but did it. Does that kind of encourage contempt? You're like, dude, you're supposed to catch the ball. Why are you paying (laughs) 60 bucks for this? Listen, I think people should do whatever
3: makes them happy as long as it's not hurting other people. So if you want to buy the balls, buy the balls. But personally, I roll my eyes at people who do that you know, in a not nasty way. But I also (laughs) get a little pleasure in, I guess, not having to do that Mm -hmm. because I I get him
2: You work for it. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Whenever I've seen sort of like a foul ball come, there's like a scuffle. There's a skirmish to get that ball. Have you ever been injured by other people? Like, it gets kind of dicey, right?
3: I've never injured anyone, (laughs) but I have been injured by people for sure. I've had a number of scrapes and bruises. I actually was... I was reaching for a Brett Gardner batting practice home run ball on the ground at Yankee Stadium, and some guy thought it would be a good idea to try to kick the ball away from me, and he kicked my hand instead (gasps) and uh, tore a ligament in my thumb. So that happened a few years ago. So there's just, there's stuff like that. You know, I'm very careful and aware of my surroundings. I get accused online, falsely accused of knocking kids down and stealing (laughs) baseballs, but... In fact, the way I conduct myself is the exact opposite of that. How do you feel about? Uh,
1: how do you feel about t-shirt cannons? Do you go for those too, or?
3: I go you? for it because I just love to catch things, and <laughs> any excuse to
1: use my athleticism in the real world is a treat. Is there no scenario in which you know some manager sees you, be like, "Yo, Hempel, like you can catch balls much better than <laughs> most of my fielders. Come join oh, the yeah. team." Oh yeah.
3: I will put this out there. I could play a very adequate and average left field in the major leagues. However, if I ever had to hit, that would be a disaster. If you need a an average defensive replacement late in the game. Are you still a fan of a team? Can you say no. like
1: with all that? You can't be. like that, that I want Mike possible.
3: Trout to win a World Series. Okay. So I find myself hoping that the Angels will win, but I'll stop short of calling myself an Angels fan. He's my all-time favorite player. It was Cal Ripken Jr., right? but then I caught the Trout home run, and then Trout was always cool and remembered me, and he gave me a signed bat years later because I didn't ask for anything at the time. So I was like, you know what? He's my favorite player now, and Shohei is my second favorite, so it's like right. the Angels got number one and two, so I'd like to see them win. You know, I was a Mets fan growing up, but... I love Greg Maddox and he was on the Braves and you're supposed to hate the Braves, but I was always rooting for Greg <laughs> Maddox to pitch well against the Mets. If you like the Mets, you're supposed to hate the Yankees, but I always loved Ricky Henderson and Dave Winfield and Don Mattingly and I rooted for those guys and I would always root for Mariano and Jeter and Judge now. So I to call myself a fan of any one team doesn't mean
2: You're really a fan of baseball and I love this. I love this approach and I think it's a good spirit that we can all take into this new season opening day do you have any advice for someone on opening day like what's like just in general to have a good viewing experience a good a good fan experience what what are what are some of the things you can we should take from you
3: definitely get there early especially on opening day because it's going to be one of the most crowded games of the season and most stadiums open earlier on opening day Ooh. than in the rest of the season so you know, the Yankees, for years, the first year of the stadium, I think they opened three hours early every day. and then eventually it was two hours pregame. And and in the last couple of years, they shaved it down to ninety minutes. So you don't even get to see the Yankees take batting practice, which is outrageous. The Yankees have the most money and some of the most recognizable names. They don't let their fans in early for batting practice. However, on opening day, they'll probably open it an extra half hour early or maybe a full hour. So, Get there. Take advantage. It's one of the few times. But that goes for just about any stadium. And bring your glove. Wander around. Catch some balls. Go look at the stadium from different angles. There's a special vibe and energy when there is a full house. So soak it all in. You know, A a lot of teams that only draw 10,000 fans per game, they'll still be sold out on opening day. So go be part of the madness.
2: And how can we follow along with you following along with the madness?
3: So as long as you know how to spell my name, I'm easy to find. Zach Hample. So that's Z-A-C-K H-A-M-P-L-E. And I believe that if you Google Zach Baseball and you do spell it Z-A-C-K, I think I'm the first one that pops up. So you can test that. But yeah, just punch my name into YouTube. My channel name is my name, Zach Hample. And I'm on Insta, also TikTok. Just search me everywhere. You'll find me, but YouTube is the number one thing.
2: And people can actually hire you to help them catch a ball, right?
3: Yes, and in fact, I have a guarantee that we will get at least one baseball or I give a full refund or we'll go to another game together. So no shutouts at all. Yeah, you can find that through my website, zackhample.com. But yeah, I call it Watch With Zach. And I've I've gone to games with dozens and dozens of people over the years. If you want, we can do a video together. You'll be featured on YouTube. Come be famous on YouTube for a day and we'll catch some balls.
2: Leal, well, yeah, I think he's talking to you. <laughs> I, I think I think
1: there's a nine year old who's uh we who are gonna be meeting very soon.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Zach Campbell, thank you so much for the spirit you bring, the the joy you bring. It's just wonderful and it's a great way to start the season. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I really try to keep
3: it positive and just show how much fun the sport is and what you can get out of it as a fan and giving away baseballs and hanging with kids. And, you know, the internet can be kind of mean sometimes and just watch my videos. You'll see what I'm all about. If you see me in person, you'll see it even more. Come say, hey, and hope everybody enjoys the season.
0: To the mailbox, hello, Crew. a listener writes. As I listened and laughed hysterically at Mark's funny story about being mistaken for T. Charles Erickson, it reminded me of a similar situation I encountered in Israel. It's 2018, Friday afternoon, and we're at the Jerusalem Shuk, enjoying the atmosphere of pre-Shabbat eating and shopping. One of my friends sees me and says, two women are looking for me and can't wait to see me. So I go with her to say hello. I arrive, and the two South American Jewish women can't believe it's really me Amy Solomon, and they're jumping out of their skin excited like I'm a celebrity. I have no idea who they are. They ask for hugs and photo ops and thank me for my kindness. Just like you, Mark, I play the part. Love the podcast, Amy Solomon.
2: Wait, it's so funny because when I saw that an Amy Solomon had written us, I was like, is this our friend Amy Solomon who's been on the show, the the comedy writer who wrote Notes from the Bathroom Line? Like, I remember she was on with Lauren Lapkus. She wrote, like, she had the compendium of all the really funny women in, in comedy, do you think that's who she? They thought she was,
0: but it still raises the question of, I mean, she's great, but is she recognizable in? Is the name recognizable in Jerusalem? So that this Amy Solomon, who presumably, or is there
2: another Amy Solomon? There probably is, right?
0: Probably, but it's it's a it's a very weird story because how did they know this person was named Amy Solomon? I'm guessing she's wearing some sort of name tag from from her tour group or something that says Amy Solomon, and then they're like, wait, are you the Amy Solomon? Anyway. It's weird.
2: But it's the perfect Jewish name for this to happen because I Googled it and there's like Amy Solomon artist, Amy right. Solomon this. And you're like, yeah, which, which, I'm going to Google Amy Solomon Jewish and see which, what comes
1: Which up. Jewess <laughs> are you?
2: Yeah, like it depends on, oh, then there's Amy Solomon is a member of the Hadassah Nurses Council. So maybe That's there's the that.
0: That's the one.
1: Look, I know, I know this feeling very well. I get mistaken for a Cocaine Bear all the time. Ever since the movie came out, I'd be like, "Are you the bear that likes cocaine?" I was like, "No, I'm just a large, hairy man."
2: Which is weird because when you wear your your yellow raincoat, you look like Paddington in a yarmulke. So I confuse you as actually Paddington Bear.
1: That's right. But Stephanie, the topic of the week, the topic about which we have received so many notes, uh, was your your newfound fascination with. Rehov Sumsum, Can you you please read us this note from Shai Kovach?
2: My favorite thing about having a kid is I'm the first person to have a kid and everything I discover, I'm the first person to have discovered it. So I like being, (laughs) I like like hearing from other people. Uh, Here's a new note. Greetings from West Michigan. Firstly, I love your podcast. I'm in the process of converting and listening to you makes me feel part of something larger than myself and often reminds me of all the beautiful things about Judaism that keep me on my journey. Now to the point of my email. I listened to the episode today where Stephanie shared that Grover is Jewish and even had a book to prove it. This piqued my interest because my 10-year-old and 19-month-old love Sesame Street, and it is a staple in our home. Hold on to your kippahs, but there's a whole series of books called Shalom Sesame, showing Grover and friends in various scenarios. In my home, we personally own Shana Tovah Grover, a Seder for Grover. <laughs> Grover goes to Israel. It's a mitzvah Grover and counting down to Hanukkah, featuring none other than the count. It seems clear to me that not only is Grover Jewish, but so is the Count. Your faithful and newest Jewish listener, Shay Kovacs. I love this. Is Shalom Sesame's also a show, right?
1: Yes. Grover wouldn't be caught dead in this shul, <laughs> is another entry in this uh, thing.
2: Grover, in you call that kiddish? Cookie Monster ate all the kiddish cookies.
0: <laughs> I had to hide. Grover goes to the mikvah from my dirty-minded children.
2: Uh, Shay Kovacs,
0: you you will be entering the mikvah and coming home to Judaism with some pretty deep knowledge. Thank you for writing. Grover sets the Sesame Street eruv. Like you, you, there really is no reason not to just keep going deeper, right?
2: Someone in the Facebook group posted uh, Nathaniel Rosenberg. He's this funny guy on TikTok. He has a whole a three-part series about how all the blue Muppets are Jewish. Oh, my um, God. So my goal is to find Nathaniel Rosenberg and talk to him and just well, continue. Well, they do, they,
0: they do have blue fringes. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. so
2: funny. By the third one, he's like, these random character. he has my eyebrows, he has my nose, he has my mouth.
0: Can you can he's you send Jewish. a Muppet for shotness testing? <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> like you could actually send the whole Muppet to see if it's mixing wool and linen fibers and is therefore not <laughs> kosher. That that's how Snuphalophagus got uh, got banned. Write to us with your profound halakhic thoughts on uh, Sesame Street, on being recognized in Jerusalem, on whatever. We're at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or you can call us 914-570-4869.
2: I'm so excited about our next Jewish guest. She is food writer Hani Apfelbaum. She runs the very popular food blog and Instagram TikTok Busy in Brooklyn. And she joined us to talk about her new cookbook, Totally Kosher. Hani, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. so nice to be here. I've seen you say... How to pronounce your name? Could you tell us what food-related words you tell people? To I say? like to
4: say it's chani like khala, not chana masala. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so this is so exciting. You sort of are the the food personality known online as Busy in Brooklyn. You have a huge following. Your first book was called Millennial Kosher, which I think is like a very good encapsulation of of you and and your style and what it is you do. Your new book,
1: forget the Millennium Falcon, Millennium Kosher. Exactly, is exactly. What exactly. We need to your do.
2: new book is totally kosher. I want to start at the beginning and ask you, when you sort of realized how important food was either to your your identity, your Jewish identity, your your life identity. I mean, when did food become so? She's she's Jewish, like the moment she, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> moment <laughs> she right? arrived.
4: I grew up in a home that was like very open. I grew up on the block of seven seventy Eastern Parkway, the Lubavitch World Headquarters. So as you can imagine, like when the Lubavitch Rebbe was still alive and the, he used to have Farbrangans and he used to have like all the different chagim and yom tovim, thousands of people came in from all over the world. And like our house was the place to go. And my mother had a huge spread. But all the like Ashkenazi Hamish food that you can imagine, tongue and your shalmi kugel and potato <laughs> kugel and lakshin, like every type of kugel. She still cooks three types of kugels every shabbat. And I'm like the anti-kugel. <laughs> I like to eat it, but I don't cook it. So I, I grew up in that kind of home where like everything was celebrated around food. It was always plentiful. It was always, always felt really special. I always say my that my mom really instilled in me that Jewish pride through food, but like literally never stepped foot in the kitchen because I'm very creative person. As you can probably see from my recipes, they're super out of the box. For me, it just seemed so like square and scientific. And I was just like, I'm not interested in this. For Shabbos day, I used to have to make the salads. So I made the salad dressing. One week I put like a half a cup of salt instead of sugar in the dressing and like everyone was spinning out their salad at the table. So it's like the biggest joke in
2: my family that like I'm a professional cook now. And um, that your like salads are sort of like a specialty. Right.
4: And that also I don't put sugar in my salads at all because like I'm totally against that whole philosophy. Like why coat your veggies in sugar? Which I didn't I think,
2: even know that that was a thing. Who, it, what is, oh, why? It's totally. It's a huge thing. It's a huge What's thing the in the Ashkenazi it? world. Like okay.
4: every cookbook you pull out, salad dressings have like, Straight up, half a cup of sugar. But
2: why? Because otherwise kids will
1: not eat the salad.
4: I always joke to my mom, sugar is a sweetener, not a seasoning. And I think when you grow up with the Ashkenazi Hungarian palate, it's like if something doesn't have flavor, add sugar. (laughs) I add salt, (laughs) Salt. you know, or lemon. (laughs) So um, I got married. And I think that learning to find your way around the kitchen, it's just a rite of passage, right? Every week, Shabbat dinner, you know, so... I would just call my mother every Friday and be like, how do I make a filter fish? How do I make potato kugel? Like all the traditional foods. And I I was like an okay cook, like I could follow a recipe. But when I started inviting guests over, like people would ask me for recipes and I was like, what is it? So I realized I had a knack for presentation because I am creative and I love photography and I love those type of things. So, you know, that kind of like piqued my interest. Like, oh, you know what? Maybe this is a way that I could explore my creativity, a way for me to express myself artistically.
1: I want a little detour for a second. Yeah. Uh, because this is this goes back to creativity. Yeah. I, I love a lot of things about this book. We'll get to, I think, most of them. First of all, the fact that it's a, it's a kosher cookbook with a lot of non-meat options, okay. which doesn't appeal to me at all because I would eat meat seven you times a day. You literally have the, the Miso um,
2: London broil correct. page open. but,
1: but, <laughs> and but bookmarks. But, but I, I, I have the Miso London broil open because... One thing I love about this book is not just how beautiful it is, but also the recipes are so all over the place and like really just genuinely inventive. So you have miso London broil, you have fried chicken with hot maple sauce, spatchcock sesame chicken, like this amazing chili things crisp. That, that come from all these cultures. Now, here's the thing. I grew up not keeping kosher. It's only the last 10 years. So I could totally understand how someone like me would have absorbed all these flavors and influences but when you were growing up, kosher food was still not as big of a thing as, as it is today. And yeah. I, I just want to know, where do all these influences and ideas come from?
4: For me, like I was saying in the beginning, I really was just like doing the traditional foods. And I love going back to like, I have some followers that are followers from the beginning. I like to say my blog just had its boss mitzvah because it's just for 12 years old. Um, if you go back to the beginning, first of all, my photography was awful and now like I'm a professional food photographer photograph both my cookbooks that you can see the transition of the food like I started off like give fish three ways you know <laughs> on a platter with like <laughs> wasabi and like you know and grain <laughs> uh, <filter fish laughs>
1: three ways in a jar, out of the jar, and by the jar.
4: <laughs> Never in the jar. I actually was interviewed uh, by the Wall Street Journal for an article about a filter fish. The cover of the article was me saying, it still gives me nightmares. <laughs> 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 so I grew up eating this stuff from the jar. Absolutely not. But yeah, I, I would buy the frozen loaf and like make it three different ways or whatever. But like, that's so not my style anymore. And like, it really evolved just, I think a lot of my friends in the kosher blogging world, we all kind of started around the same time and then around the holidays everyone was like, who's gonna think of like the coolest donut, the coolest latka? So it really had me like push myself creatively um and competitively. Yeah, and competitively. <laughs> I'm a little competitive. So I think but what, what really shifted for me was I went to kosher culinary school and I really went in with the mentality like I'm not saying no to anything, right? I had my like Ashkenazi palate, paprika garlic powder Like I said, lots of sugar, (laughs) um, not a lot of fresh herbs, like not a lot of spices. Like Spartam always make the joke, right? Like their food is actually has flavor and Ashkenazi food has no flavor. I went and then like we just were making like all these different types of cultural and ethnic dishes. And like I remember the day that we made Pad Thai. Like for me, that was a day that completely blew my mind because I didn't like fresh ginger, hated cilantro. And it was so spicy. Like my mouth was on fire. But like, It was just everything. Like it hit my palate in so many ways. And I was just like, wow. And actually I did a pad chai in this book, (laughs) which is like a Middle Eastern Thai fusion. And it is my favorite recipe in the book. It is so flavorful. It has tamarind and arisa and cilan and lime. And it's just, and so, so good. So that was the turning point. And it just like, I went crazy from there.
2: Something that our team has actually been talking about a lot since we got these copies of your book is how hard it is to sort of have an inspired vegetarian kitchen, basically a a kitchen that's not heavily reliant on meat. And so we have a few people on our team who are sort of always looking for those recipes. And they said, you know, honey, did it. There's so much in here that is plant-based, that doesn't rely on, you know, a huge cut of of, of Of meat. So so how does that, how does it sort of play into your almost philosophy on what kosher is? So first of all, I really
4: think for people that keep kosher and that are observant and they keep, you know, Shabbat every weekend is so heavy on animal protein. And I really feel like after the weekend, I just want a break. So I instituted Meatless Mondays in my house and you know, my kids are like excited about it. They come home like, what's for Meatless Monday? And if I ever like don't have time and just throw in chicken, they're all like, what are you doing? It's Meatless (laughs) Monday. This is a rule here, which is actually interesting because in my book, I actually give away that how I master dinner. And the way I did that, which I think is really great for people that feel overwhelmed by what to make for dinner, because you're like, what should I make? Right. So there's a million different things you can make. So I have basically a guideline. So Sundays I always do like leftovers from Shabbos. And if I don't have any, we'll do you know, a barbecue or takeout if I feel like, you know, I need that break. Monday's always meatless. Tuesday's always meat. Wednesday's always chicken. Thursday's always dairy. Then, you know, Shabbos is always kind of different. Saturday night is always some kind of egg. Shakshuka, you know, scrambled egg tacos, whatever it is. And that just like gives me a framework. Instead of being like, what do I make? I know it's chicken night. And I like being creative. So I'm not planning the actual dish but my protein is there. So it just builds from there. So I think that's really helpful for anyone that feels overwhelmed in the kitchen. But going back to what I said, I instituted Meatless Mondays and like my kids love it. We we love beans in my house. um. So like a lot of bean dishes, like literally my kids' favorite dinner is refried bean tacos. They love it. Like it's their favorite. My cauliflower <laughs> varnishkas from the book, I think are just like so fun. And it's really could be like a full meal. Add a little bit of yogurt Amazing. to that. For me, it really all started with that choice to go meatless on Mondays. And we need to do that. In the kosher world, there's not enough of that. And and I would love to see people take that on.
1: I noticed a real kind of sea change in the last 12 or 15 years, basically the time. And and I think it has a lot to do with you and, and your leadership in this field. But, you know, 10 years ago, when you looked at kosher food, the inferiority complex was intense. I mean, people are like, it's kosher. It's good. It happens to be kosher. It's delicious. It's kind of like, oh, we're really sorry. Whereas the quote unquote normal food world was like, oh, we're so like the vibe was so radically different. And now it's not at all inconceivable to have a cookbook that looks unbelievably gorgeous and has these like super great recipes. And it's a kosher cookbook or to walk into a restaurant that's like an amazing ramen restaurant it's kosher. That uses pastrami instead of, you know, guanciale or whatever it is. H- have you experienced this? What do you think has been going on? How how did we how did we ascend like this?
4: I think we definitely live in a, like a foodie culture. People are more demanding. Consumers are more demanding. The companies have to put up with that demand, and they're coming out with so many different types of products that were never available to us. I go to Kosher Fest every year, and it's always amazing to see like the things. And I remember like. I love Korean food, but I never was able, when was I ever able to try it, right? So like there's this lady, topora and she actually has this restaurant in the old city called Seoul House. And she had this booth and she was selling gojajang and she was selling kimchi. And like right there and then she made this soup that like blew my mind. That was literally like dried anchovies, water, some miso paste and like gojajang. And I was just like, what is this? This is unlike anything I've ever tried before, like so rich with umami flavor, which is really hard to build in the kosher kitchen if it's pariv, right? You know, it's people like that that are bringing these, you know, kosher products to the market, which are giving us the ability to try foods that we've never tried before. I do think that in the mainstream world, it's very slow to kind of accept that kosher has evolved. Everyone kind of still sees Jewish food as brown and Jewish food as, you know, margarine Please and schmaltz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything is beige. And, and the fact is, it is beige, right? Matzo ball soup, gefilte fish, brisket, potato kugel. They're all brown foods.
1: Beautiful. <laughs> so and, since you brought up kugel.
2: Yes. I don't like kugel. And everyone says I just haven't had theirs. But is it possible that it's weird? No, it's possible that you don't like kugel. It's... I'm a texture girl.
4: Like that's what you were saying about the salads. Like I love all the textural components. And kugel is mushy. It's period. so mushy. It is
2: mushy. I get it. Or it's it. like crispy. I don't know what it's. I've never. I don't. I don't understand it. Right. So I always
4: say, like, why take a vegetable, boil out all the flavor, mash it up, add eggs, and then put it in a tray when you could just roast the vegetables with olive oil and salt, and it's so much more flavorful. I don't know. I think for me, it's like, it's a comfort food thing. It's nostalgic. It brings mm-hmm. me back to my youth. Like my mother's potato kugel. There's nothing like it. It's in my book, Ma's Perfect Potato Kugel. Listen, you know, I, I really think that some of these Jewish foods are really just about nostalgia. And sometimes I think about matzables. They taste like like wet socks. Right. Like that's the texture. You're like, not taste like it, but
2: that's the texture. Yes. and But then you're like, this brings me back. But you know, I think my favorite part of this book is honestly the, the beginning. It's like page 15 or something. The top 10 ingredients to transform kosher cooking. So will you give us sort of an overview of what are some of these ingredients that And margarine should... is in one yeah, of them? No, not in there.
4: So I would say like my number one is coconut oil. And I know that coconut oil is like getting a lot of bad, <laughs> you know, press these days. But I always say, look, it's better than margarine, right? It's healthier, it's natural. And the beauty of coconut oil is that it's solid at room temperature. So if, you know, a cookie recipe calls for creaming and you need a solid fat and you can't use oil. Coconut oil is a great replacement, but I think that's something that people don't realize. Like a lot of people are put off by the coconut flavor and they don't realize that you can buy refined coconut oil that has zero coconut flavor, but gives you that solid fat that you're able to actually, you know, use in the creaming process and, and make those perfect chocolate chip cookies that are pariv. So all my desserts are parv in my book because I really like, I understand that people that keep kosher want to be able to serve desserts no matter and eat like. Can you explain
2: that, by the way, to people who are listening who don't what know? Desserts, you mean? Yeah, explain it's what dessert it's a dessert
4: is. So, parv means neither meat nor dairy, it's neutral. So, it doesn't have any dairy components in it, doesn't have any butter in it, doesn't have any milk in it, doesn't have any meat in it. Anything can be a, a parv dessert. Pavlova, right? It's made of egg white sugar, it's parv. Any kind of bun cake, as long as there's no milk in it or no butter and it's oil-based or coconut oil-based. Cookies, sorbet, those are all part of desserts, yeah, or can be.
1: So on, on this note, a lot of people, myself once upon a time included, tend to look at kosher and see it strictly as a set of restrictions. It's like, oh, it's just things that I can't do. And not often or ever really Look at it. And be like, this is actually a beautiful thing that is like so enriching, and not just because it connects us to a tradition, but because it really kind of unlocks—not to put to fine a point on it—but spiritual energies. Uh, In what
4: way do you feel that it unlocks spiritual energies?
1: It's very hard for me to explain. I still can't tell you why I decided okay. to go kosher, but I can tell you that the feeling is completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it's a feeling of of control. Of hey, you know, I made a decision about my values today. I mm-hmm. said, I love oysters dearly. Uh, they used to be a huge part of my weekly routine. Um, <laughs> I think that's healthy. You know? uh, <laughs> okay. And and I gave them up for something that I care much more about. And I love knowing that about myself. But also there's kind of like, almost like a metaphysical feeling that I can't describe, right? Of of feeling like, yeah, there's, there's a connection there. There's a connection that's like mind and body coming together in this beautiful way because I made this choice. Do you as, as a kosher cookbook author who has a following that's much larger than just, you know, the relatively small segment of kosher keepers, is this something that you grapple with, think about, or are you primarily just preoccupied like, hey, man, my job is hard enough just to make stuff taste great. And that's all I want to think about.
4: Well, first off, let's just, you know, define kosher for a minute, because I think kosher means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some people, it's just like, I don't eat pork, I don't eat shellfish. You know, I eat out in restaurants. I eat vegan in restaurants. You have people that are like ultra-Orthodox that only will eat like or very, very stringent. Even OU wouldn't be okay for them. People that like check all their vegetables under a light box. And like I do get a a lot of comments often when I'll use certain vegetables on Instagram like, you know, how did you check that? How can you use that without checking or whatever it is? So, you know, I always say respect that there are so many different levels of kosher and everybody keeps different levels of kosher. But like, at the end of the day, are there restrictions? Of course there are restrictions. I literally just listed them, right? So there are more restrictions for some people than others, depending on your level of observance. But for me, like, if you tell me I can have something, it's just going to throw me in the creative zone. And, like, I'm going to figure out a way to make an amazing Philly cheesesteak sandwich without, you know, that I can't use meat and cheese together. And I have one in the book with portobello mushrooms. And it is so good.
2: I think that's great. Like, instead of seeing restriction, you see a challenge. Yes.
1: Stephanie? already confessed her dislike of Kugel. I kind of really don't like latkes, which I think are like the the 19th. It's not even the 19th best thing you could do with a potato. It's like such a schlep for for nothing and just First of all, you you
4: have not had a good latke. I'm
1: sorry. You know, possible. But I'm curious. Is there a kind of staple Jewish food? You could say like, if this disappeared, I would be fine.
4: Uh, Yeah, 100%. It's brisket.
1: Oh! Oh, I, oh! Wow! I,
4: I don't like. I feel like it's just brown. It's mushy. It slides down your throat. It has no texture. Like I like a red piece of meat. You know, I want to bite and chew my meat. I don't know. And yeah. I'm like, every restaurant you go to, it's like brisket, everything, and I can so do without it. And I know that, like, I lost a little bit of my. Uh,
2: <laughs> Everyone was like, I was about to follow her on Instagram. Right. <laughs> okay, so then what will we? Do? What would you do instead of a brisket? Like, would you do that miso London broil? Like, what are other right, some so ways? So I like you? so
4: actually like in I know that a lot of people like braised meat. I'm not a fan of braised meats in general. So like I have a recipe for a balsamic delmonica roast with onion petals. So I actually did it two ways in the book, where you can braise it and use the same recipe to dry roast it, and both methods are amazing. You just have to really understand like the cut of meat you're using, and like you know some cuts can't be braised and dry roasted. It has to be a tender cut you know you can't dry roast the brisket you'll just choke <laughs> so <laughs> so what would i do instead of pulled beef like you know what everyone does these pulled beef flatbreads right there's like all over and i did like a pulled konny flatbread in my book so it has like togarashi yoli and pull, you know i saute the konny <laughs> and like and, you know and like a soy sauce you know sauce and then it's topped with radishes and edamame and like all the crunchy things and french fried onions and 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 sweet sauce so
2: now, yeah. if we all look so happy right um, now, <laughs> I'm so happy
1: right now. Uh, even though I do like my brisket, but I totally see the point. Okay. Uh, if we got some sort of special dispensation, a kind of you know one day hall pass, yeah. to go out and eat anywhere, anything for a day. Yeah. First of all, do you, do you think about that ever? And second of all, where where would you go? And is that totally, if you're to you? a
4: foodie, of course you do. I always say like, pretty much. You can find substitutes for everything in the kosher kitchen besides for shellfish. So I really don't know what shellfish tastes like. I don't know. Well, lobster, you like look at like the commercials. It's just like dripping in butter. And I'm like, it <laughs> looks like it was not like I I wish I could try that. You know? Though I
2: will say considering all of these conversations about texture, I feel like you probably would not like like the thing about shellfish that's weird. It's just like all the different textures.
1: Although, again, that's part of why I like oysters, like so satisfying slimy, and slimy like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with that little perfect mignonette and a nice shot of vodka. Oh.
2: Um, honey, you brought us something. Yeah. I Can we it. talk about this? Yeah. I'm so excited. Okay, so Pesach mm. is coming. So I brought
4: my Harosa
1: bars. <laughs> oh my lord. Which are
4: totally gluten-free. First of all no potato starch. I'm sorry, I, just
1: just I, describing I, the way these look. These yeah. look like the most perfect little they have like strozel on bars. top and they're like the most gorgeous breakfast bars you've ever seen.
4: So, I did like the the sparte carossa, dates and nuts and like cinnamon, right? I grew up Ashkenazi kharosa, my dad made it always with pears and walnuts and red wine. And it wasn't like a paste, it was just more like chopped up. I didn't like it, but I basically <laughs> f- I fused because you it's it's not like delicious, you know, like the sfardi kharosa is delicious. Of course. You can just bite into it. So, I kind of fused them both together. So the filling is um apple or pear and dates and red wine. And cinnamon and salt, and then the base is basically almond flour, sugar, eggs, and then you know it's it's a basic like breakfast bar. So you you split it in half, use the other half for the topping, and I add walnuts. So kind of all the all the flavors that you get in
2: haroset. Oh, that is so good! It is very true oh to god. the harosetness of it. Yeah, but it also strays from it. It doesn't feel like a the Seder. Right. Oh my yeah. god. Liel, this is incredible. Thank you. But I have to say, it's so elevated. Do I sound like I'm on a cooking show? (laughs) It's so elevated that you would never expect that you could eat something this fancy on Passover because we think of it as a time where you have to eat like sort of. Blind food. Yes. Yeah. But here, I'm going to bring this all back to why what you're doing is so amazing and so effective is that you're leaning into the specificity. You are not trying to not like these are haroset bars. You're not saying like this is a weird thing we eat once a year. You're saying, let me take this hyper specific Jewish food. Yeah and make something beautiful I and fun out of it. I even say in the
4: recipe that you should pulse it till it resembles the mortar that the Jews <laughs> use because that's what we're going
2: for. Which is precisely
1: me. Yeah, it's yeah. precisely Incredible. what I
2: do. Yeah, Honey Applebaum, This my as my mouth is full of horosa breakfast bar, such a treat having you here. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us food. Thank you for bringing us this newest book, Totally Kosher. Our listeners can get it wherever books are sold and to follow you online at at busy in Brooklyn. Thank you for having me. Happy Pesach, everyone. Happy Pesach indeed.
0: Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a Mazel tov this week?
2: Yes, I do have a Mazel tov. It is to my grandmother, Cecile Rothhaus. She got Wordle on the first try this morning, according to my Wordle group chat, which is my mother's entire side of the family. Um, I've actually stopped playing Wordle like a year ago, but I love, I love to be part of the chat just to see what's going on. And congrats, Grandma Seal, on that hole-in-one.
0: Liel, do you have a Mazel tov?
1: I have a beautiful Mazel tov. So, you know, as you may have heard, Israel is in uh, a bit of turmoil this and, and every other week. It's almost as if it's France. It is It is even worse. Uh, it is really getting quite heated uh, between two distinct camps. And yesterday something happened that just made my heart explode with, with so much love and so much pride. Because there was a big demonstration planned of secular Tel Avivis who are marching over to the Haredi town of Bnei Brak basically to protest that Haredi Israelis don't serve in the army and because most of them don't work and rather study Torah all day long, they also don't pay taxes. So the the idea behind this march was to protest, hey, you guys aren't doing your fair share. Uh, And you could expect this thing to become really loaded. And you could expect this thing to become really ugly and heated. And the protesters marched in and they were greeted by yeshiva boichers standing behind big, long banquet tables full with pots of cholent, handing out free cholent to the protesters. And almost within like three seconds, you could see all the protesters and all the Haredes eating cholent together, hugging, dancing, talking, really listening to one another. And you know what? That is what a truly Jewish protest looks like. It involves cholent. (laughs) <laughs> bring, bring
0: out some herring and we've resolved all the problems. I have nothing so moving as that, but but what I have is, is heartfelt. Last week, the National Book Critics Circle handed out its awards for the last year. And I have a very, like every author, I have a very vexed relationship with uh, all the awards that I don't get. <laughs> and I'm always, you know, weirdly kind of, Fascinated by them, repulsed by them, et cetera. They promote competition, but they also bring attention to authors, which is a good thing. And very often the winner is either someone who's very famous and already has great book sales and you and doesn't need it, or it's somebody who I think is probably pretty terrible and got the award because of some sort of inside political, whatever reason. And last night, one of the winners was this professor. He, his name was Timothy Buse. He seems totally unconnected in the world of books, politics, whatever. And he won the award for criticism for what sounds like a fairly academic book um, about the history of the novel called Free Indirect. He's, I think, a professor at Brown. He seemed totally surprised. He didn't expect to win. And I just felt on some very deep level that, that one of the good guys had won. It just seemed like he's, he just seemed like a mensch who got an award and uh, that he didn't expect. Hashem. And I just thought, well, that's, the, and, and you, I just thought, I bet the judges really loved the book. I bet that's why he got the book. And sadly, and I've served on award committees, that's not always what happens. So to Timothy Buse, you and your rumpled Gentile <laughs> literary critic soul, Mazel tov. Unorthodox production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Lebowitz We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer, whom I apparently look like uh, with this latest haircut of mine. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Jerome Rousquet. Administrative support from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook and get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. And by the way, we were just talking about how good the episode art has been lately. So take a look at your phone and look at those buttons and look at how good it is. Esther Werdiger is a major talent. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox name is by Steve Barton. You can send a snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, one triple zero one. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Joshua Korber at Congregation Adat Jeshrin in Louisville, Kentucky. And we come to you from Tablet Studios, but also from Kentucky. Shalom, friends.